0: The Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders. This is episode 42, The Ripper in Ramsgate, with author Chris Scott. I'm Jonathan Magus, and joining the show today from Ramsgate, Kent, UK, is Chris Scott. Howard Brown's coming to us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. From Kingston upon Hole is Mike Covell. Ben Holm is in Penshurst, Kent, in the UK. And Gareth Williams is coming to us from Neath, in Wales. Chris Scott is an author and researcher as well as being thankfully a regular on this podcast and he's been applauded for his work transcribing relevant newspaper articles for the Casebook.org Press Reports archive and for his research into genealogy, census reports, and infirmary records that he shares freely on the Casebook message boards. I think you can safely say that Chris Scott is the researcher in residence on Casebook and he generously provides information to members on an on-call basis. He compiles the Press Troll section for Ripperologist magazine and is the author of the 2005 book, Will the Real Mary Kelly? Today we'll be discussing his latest book, The Ripper and Ramsgate, The Whitechapel Murderer in a Seaside Town, which explores the links that that town of Ramsgate Kent has to the crimes of Jack the Ripper. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the show today. Okay. Now, what led you to decide to embark on a book that examined the ties that Ramsgate has to the Whitechapel murders in London?
1: It was basically a cumulative thing. It was um, I, I have to admit right from the author that it wasn't an entirely original idea, and what sparked it off was um, seeing mentioned on Casebook uh, details of a book which I haven't actually got because it's a very rare publication by Martin Eastdown and Linda Sage, and it's called Jack the Ripper in a Seaside Town. The Whitechapel Murders, as seen in Folkestone, which is about 20 miles from here. Now, this came out in 2002 as a strictly limited uh, 100-numbered edition. I haven't got a copy. I haven't seen it. Um, But I remember that idea lurking in the back of my mind. And then some years ago, I was doing some research in the local archive, in the local library, um, in Ramsgate Library, of uh, local newspapers and how it was covered at the time in the local papers. And then sadly, four years ago, uh, the library here, which was a, a lovely old Carnegie library, was gutted by fire. Uh, I mean, literally gutted down to ground level. Uh, so, and all the local archives and the contents of the local museum were were destroyed. So, it's very lucky I, I extracted some of the press articles and I did. Um, and then when I was while I was researching certain material for the Kelly book and for the cast of thousands book um because it's your own town it's like hearing your own name at a cocktail party when you're doing research and you see ramsgate or wherever you live it sticks in your mind so when i was researching the background for fleming that i saw there was a ramsgate connection and then um there was the uh, the, the guest house of Kosminski's brother all these things stick in your mind and i knew i knew of the sicket connection as well because I'll, I'll explain why later that was through a personal friend but all these things, came, it's like a snowball slowly going downhill, if you can imagine. Uh, and you get to the point and you think, you know, there's quite a lot of material here, actually, within of within where I live. And, and suddenly the idea gelled. And I thought, well, why not? And there, but the, the clincher was, I know the chap, uh, Michael Childs, who owns the local bookshop. And he also runs a small local press. And I have to be in there one day because I spent hours in there because it's one of these lovely old-fashioned, musty, ramshackle uh, bookshops with corners here and there. And he's a little bit eccentric but a really nice guy. And we were talking one day and I happened to mention about the Ripper because I was looking through his true crime section. Um, and uh, I just said, you know, I said, well, you know, there's a few connections with Ramsgate. And he sort of looked a bit puzzled. And then as we were talking, and, and it was uh, he was the one because he publishes local interest books, and he says, do you think there's a book in it? This was uh, last year. And I said, well, I'll have a go, uh, sort of rather sceptically. But then when I started pulling the material together, then um, I must emphasise to people who are listening who haven't seen any details, it is a booklet rather than a book. It's only 50 pages. Um, and it's uh, so, you know, I didn't want to pad it out with – you know, vast swathes of, of detailed accounts of the murders and the inquests and all that. I mean, I've summarized them, but I wanted to keep fairly much to the meat and also, from the uh, press's point of view, keep production costs down a little bit because, you know, we've put it out at £3.99 and tried to keep it reasonable. Um, and, and it seems to be paying off because it's ticking over quite nicely, but that that basically is how I came to write it. It was an cu- accumulation of things over a couple of years, but then the final clincher was actually being asked to write it by the guy who runs the local press.
0: Now, Ramsgate is roughly seventy miles or one hundred and ten kilometers from London. About ninety. Um, can you describe for us uh, those of us like myself and some of our listeners that may be unfamiliar with the area a little yeah. bit about the town?
1: Very briefly, it's it's a, it's about ninety miles from London. We're on the extreme southeast edge of uh england you literally can't go any further i mean any any further in you're in the channel we f- we face france france is actually nearer to me than london is um and uh, we're in an area called thanet which up until tudor times was geographically still an island but it's since since been stilted uh, silted up and reclaimed um it's a uh, I know I'm biased. It's a, I think, a very, very attractive town. It's, it only really started taking off at the beginning of the 19th century. Up until the late 18th century, Ramsgate was literally just a tiny little fishing, uh, fishing village, tiny small port with a fairly good natural harbour. And then in the early 19th century, when when resorts became more fashionable and Margate took off and Ramsgate took off, and that's really when the town. Took off, so uh, the bulk of the architecture, and thank God it's very well preserved. We've got a huge number of both um, Georgian, late Georgian, and Regency buildings in the town. That's very late 18th century, early 19th century. I think there's over there's well over a thousand listed buildings in the town, and there's whole. You know, when I see the when I go onto the East End photographs and drawings sketch, and we see the then and now, like. Um, uh, Philip Hutchinson's book and that. You know, we're so blessed in Ramsgate because you know there's so many photographs I see of Ramsgate in the nineteen twenties or even the eighteen nineties. And with obvious differences, you know, you can walk down that street today and it's it's virtually still the same. Obviously there you know there are cars and street bookings and television aerials and telegraph poles, but the structure of the town is very much the same, even though because it was in the front line during the war. Ramsgate was the principal port from which the D-Day landings were coordinated. Um, the other thing I like around here is it's a very, because, of, because we face onto to France and the continent, it's a very historically important area. I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are in the local archaeological trust, and from where I'm sitting now, literally within three miles in various directions, I could take you to... Uh, the, place where Saint, the place where Julius Caesar landed at Deal, which is about three miles away for the first Roman invasion. I could then take you to Ebbsfleet, where St. Augustine landed for the beginning of the conversion of Britain, and also to Viking Bay and Broadstairs, where Hengist and Hawser landed, which was the beginning of the Anglo-Saxon invasion. So it's, it's this little corner, although it's rather sleepy now, is actually, you know, it's been in the forefront. But it's a very... Um, it's a very pretty town, but uh, not not twee, not over pretty. It's not like a film set. I mean, they're lived-in buildings, and the buildings have adapted. And but we've got lots of little alleyways and byways, and um, the, the the cover of um, uh, the Ripper in Ramsgate, which is um, an alleyway through. Um, it goes. It's called Catherine Court. The area it goes through. And that there's lots of areas of Ramsgate, there's lots of Flint buildings, there's lots of Regency and Georgian buildings. So I hope it gives you a little flavor of what it's like.
0: That sounds great. Um, now, without giving away the entire contents of your book, I do want to discuss today a few of the connections you write about. Mm. The f- first one I want to cover concerns the lodger story. Right. <clears throat> now, this tale has had many incarnations and twists and turns, in the press at the time, the contemporary press, and you kind of summarize those tales in your book.
1: Yeah, some some of the better-known ones, yeah.
0: Right. Uh, now, can you elaborate on the ones that um, concern Ramsgate?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, the, um, it's obviously a much lesser-known one. I should think probably the best-known one is the, uh, the belloc Lounge one, which became a film, the Ivan Novello film which I think is being remade. And then there's the Osbert uh, Sitwell version and all that. I must briefly, just to attribute you know, where credit's due, to say how I came to find this Ramsgate version of the lodger story. It was actually through Norma, Norma Buddle. Um, And she sent me, oh, this was a couple of years ago, she sent me um, photocopies of all the 1894 Sun articles about Cutbush because I'd offered to transcribe them for the press report section. And um, it was actually as a result of that, that I actually found this letter because the the, the Sun articles about Cutbush, um, which led directly onto the McNaughton Memorandum, they, uh, were, they were spaced over, I think, four days of publication, very, very long articles. Um, and on the last day, there was a whole series of letters, reaction from readers, and one of them was a fairly brief letter from a, a Mr. Crotty, C-R-O-T-T-Y, in Ramsgate, uh, basically saying that... Um, four, years, four years before, this was in 1894 he wrote the letter, but he was saying that in 1890 they'd had a young man who he said was 27 who'd come to live with them, so this is two years after the murder, who'd, it was a fairly archetypal, you know, he'd behaved in an odd way and he said he was an ex-medic and he'd moved from London and there was this, um, his wife was supposed to have overheard him saying that he'd done something to a woman and she was not going to live, um and he obviously was a man of some means he kept two cab drivers almost on standby to sort of uh, ferry him around um he did practice as a medic uh, Crotty says that he saw three or four patients at the house in royal road in um but the um the, the last sentence of the letter which reminded me very much of the callahan version, oh, yeah. uh, the, 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 the Wentworth Bellsmith one, because Mr. Callahan said, oh, I'm, I'm sure this is the man. He's the man who contacted Forbes Winslow with the story of the man at Sun Street near uh, Finsbury Square. And Mr. Crotty says, you know, on the, they, I can't, I haven't got the book in front of me, I can't quote it verbatim, but the, the very last line of his letter was very much to the effect is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the man. Um, so, and again, that sparked off because it, it, there was no address quoted. Um, so I had to track this guy down, but fortunately he had a fairly unusual name, Crotty, cro So with some sort of genealogical shenanigans and doing a bit of digging, I was able to find out where the house was, and it's still there. But I have I've deliberately in the book not identified it by although I know the number, uh, I've not identified it by number. There is a, there is a photograph in the book of that terror. It's quite a modest house. It's a uh, a terrace of of just um, what we call in England two up, two down, basically, you know, small Victorian terrace houses. Um, I haven't contacted the people in the house. I have have ummed um denard with the idea and said, you know, did did you know that your house, you know, (coughs) maybe offer them a free copy of the book. Um, So that really was the background. That's how I came upon it. Um, And uh, trace Mr. Crotty and his rather convoluted family, because by the time of the... 1891 census um the um the the two of the name of crotty that were living there were the stepsons of mr crotty's sister-in-law and it took me quite a little while to work this out he had a brother who married and then his wife remarried and it was her and her second husband and their sons who were living at the house so uh, mr crotty and his wife who was a tailor um he was uh, staying at the house in ramsgate when this when this uh, unusual man was staying there. Again, as with most cases of the lodger story, he wasn't named. We can <coughs> deduce certain, you know, he was an ex-medic, he was 27, he'd moved down from London and all this sort of thing. But we, there's not enough to follow it up. It's, it's, it's just another version of the lodger story, but it happens to be set, you know, in the town where I live.
0: Now, Mike, you, you have a question regarding this lodger tale, right?
2: Yeah, basically, uh, with reference to the the house number, um, that the the building um, is currently at. Um, in the book you've said that you don't think it's appropriate to identify the house number. No. Now, I know in, in research I've got a problem with people who live in the properties now um, yeah. that don't want the property identified. Yeah. Um, was that a personal choice, I was not to identify that, or was yeah, that from uh, the
1: property owners no, themselves? No, it was, it, it was a personal choice, I haven't approached the current um, residents of the house at all, um, because I know as, you know as soon as you mention the dreaded R word, um, either people's hackles go up, or they give you a strange look, or, not not everybody, but I mean, it, it, it's still a word that can, you know, as soon as you mention anything to do with the, with, uh, the ripper, you know, it's... Um, it's still a very emotive word and it can still, so I thought the easiest, if somebody were determined enough and has access to the 1891 census, then obviously they could track the number down. Because I've identified the road and I've published a, a photograph of the terrace of houses, but I made a point of, of it was my, my decision not to identify the, uh, the actual house number I don't think they're going to be, in, you know, inundated with, you know, people wanting to take souvenirs or anything like that. I mean, firstly, you know, I don't think the book's going to have that wider circulation, and there's probably that, not that many people in Ramsgate who are sort of, you know, ripper fanatics, um, and I can't imagine coach loads coming down to invade the house. But, um, you know, I thought, you know, to at least, re- you know, with, give minimum respect to their privacy, um, if I had approached them and they'd said, well, you yeah, know, you can put the house number, then obviously... And as... I mean, there will be a second edition of the book coming out because of... When I get on to Fleming, I'll explain why. Um, and, and it'll be coming out in fairly short order. But, um, so, I may possibly sort of approach them and timorously knock on the door with the book in hand and say, did you know this man lived here? They'll probably run screaming, or I will. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but, um I don't know. I'll, I'll just I'll just play it by ear. I, d- I don't I don't know the current occupants. I don't. So you know, I'd I'd have to handle it with some some delicacy. But in in dealings that I've had, um, um, Rob Rob House and I, when we were doing some um, Kosminski research, uh, we both hit upon a similar sort of vein of research, and a- actually ended up um, contacting people in the family, um, the Kosminski family. Um, and as soon as, you know, the R word was mentioned, it's, you know, they they metaphorically via email sort of ran screaming and said, <laughs> no, 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 we want nothing to do with this. We know about this. We're not interested. Go away politely. So I think you've got to respect that.
0: You had mentioned at the beginning, and at, at the end of the show, we'll give contact details uh, for our listeners to be able to purchase a copy of the book. But you yes. had mentioned at the beginning that you did go with a local uh, Ramsgate business owner, a bookshop seller, yes. to, yeah. to have it locally published. And it is very yeah. much a local history book. Exactly. Are, are you able to uh, gauge with the reception of the book uh, as uh, in Ramsgate itself from local citizens as opposed to the sales? that it may be experiencing from um, people interested in Ripper. I, yeah,
1: I could find that out. I know, I know the total sales to date are just under 200, of which I think probably about a quarter, because it's obviously it's on sale in the shop. And I th- of that, I spoke to Michael um, early, early last week, and at that stage the sales were about 180, of which about a quarter had been sold through the shop. Now, of the remaining three quarters, how many are local? Because, you, you know, people can order it by phone. They can order through the website or whatever. Um, and he's also got his own uh, seller site on eBay, Thanet Books. Now, how many of those are local to this area and how many of them are much further afield or even abroad? I've, I, at this stage, I don't know. We are doing um, – I'll be able to gauge the um, – the uh, sort of local reaction better because um, there's, uh, there's going to be a... Well, we don't... Apparently, I, I, I said signing session because an, another friend of mine who's a long-term Ramsgate resident, he's just got a, a new book out called Ramsgate in Old Photographs, and, and I, I've known him for years, 30 years. And he, um, uh, we were chatting, and he, he suggested that we did a, a joint signing session actually in the, the big... Uh, foyer of the local theatre, which we're we're going to do, uh, probably in a month or so. But apparently, you don't call it signing session you now; it's called a meet the author evening. <laughs> I thought, oh, for heaven's <laughs> sake! Um, but anyway, I, you know, I'll get I'll get much that more. Is, that is in, meet as
2: in M E E T, is it, M E A T?
1: Oh, M-E-E-T. Thank you, All thank right. you for that. Yes. <laughs> no. Yes. So, I mean, there's not really much point because uh, Ramsgate is one of those um, places that, you know, from about um, November through till the end of, um, well, March, really. I mean, once it gets dark, the streets are deserted. Um, I mean, it's a bit like sort of um, Royston Vasey on a quiet night for any of you who watch League of Gentlemen. Um, but but it's, um, it, it, I mean, it, during the winter, it's an amazingly quiet town. I mean, I, I can walk from about six o'clock on a Saturday evening, I could walk from my, this time of year, I could walk from my flat down to the local shops and back, and I probably wouldn't see anybody, let alone a car. I mean, this, this time of year, it's, you know, it's amazingly quiet, which which is well, one of the reasons I love it.
0: All right, Mike, you have another question?
1: Yeah, have the uh, local media down in Ramsgate picked up on the book, Chris? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing an interview for the Thanet Gazette, which is the local paper, and uh, Jeff... Um, uh, paul begs mate is um, uh, i 've been asked to do an interview as well for Kent TV, so all those are coming up within the, probably about the next two or three weeks
0: okay well um, let 's let's, uh, um, mosey on with um, more information that, that is revealed in your book and, and um, next we 'll uh, talk about the connections that you found between joseph fleming 's father yeah. and, and Ramsgate and yeah. I do know that um, I think both howard and, and Gareth have questions concerning this one as well
1: right but do you want me to do a general sort of blurb first or sure um, well the i mean although obviously i've known of him for some years the main thing that got me interested in um joseph fleming was uh was the research for the kelly book um, a few years back and it was at that stage slightly earlier but it was at that stage i realized that although he was born in bethnal green in 1859 um his father uh, and all his family, as far back as I can trace, are from Ramsgate, specifically from a, a small part of Ramsgate at the back end of Ramsgate, away from the sea, called St. Lawrence, which is actually the oldest part of the town. Um, his father, Richard, uh, was a, who was also a plasterer, was born in St. Lawrence, born in Ramsgate, 1821, and um, his father, who was uh, uh, Joseph Lemmy's grandfather, who was a baker, was also called Richard, and he lived and died here and ended up in Minster Workhouse. Um, the, obviously, Richard um, Fleming, Joseph Fleming's father, was still unmarried when he moved to London. And there he met Henrietta Masson, who was um, Joseph Fleming's mother, and they married and ended up living in Bethnal Green. But the, um, he had one brother called Alfred, who was Joseph Fleming's uncle. Now, he, he stayed in the area... All his life, and ended up living at about four different different addresses. Again, all of which are still there. The house there was uh, some cottages in uh, in St Lawrence, and then he he ended up living in a road called Hardress Street, forty-five Hardress Street, um, and that building is still there. Um, So, you know, there was there was strong family connections. I haven't yet heard of or managed to trace any Flemings or you know, by marriage or by blood, who are still in the area. Um, I, I, did, I did briefly mention earlier about a second edition, and it was mainly because of the stuff that's come to light about Fleming, who's a character of major interest. Um, and it was Rob Clack who, um, some weeks ago, very kindly provided me with the asylum records of um, Joseph Fleming under the name James Evans when he was at Stone, which was his first period in an asylum, the first four years, uh, ninety one to ninety five, and then he then he uh, then he went to Claybury, um, and they were fairly full records of case notes of um, Joseph Fleming with some rather alarming entries, like it says he was six foot seven and weighed eleven stone. As somebody on the message board said, he must have been like a sort of um, anemic Peter Crouch. Um, and yet they said um, then, he was
3: in good bodily health, which is even even weirder, isn't it? Well, exactly,
1: exactly. I mean, he'd have, he'd have looked like a sort of extra from Doctor Who. I mean, he'd have been of a very old build. Um, and unfortunately, I've been in touch with the Redbridge Record Office, which is in um, Essex. It's near where Claybury Hospital used to be. I mean, the buildings are still there, but it's now ceased activity as a, as a medical unit. Um, and sadly, they have... Um, very little they literally only have a record of his admission in 1895 and there's there's all these attendant mysteries as to how um not how but why and when he adopted the name james evans um it's obvious that the 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 asylum authorities knew his real name because on the on the death certificate both names are on there he's down as joseph fleming and uh james evans um and his his mother is down quite clearly on the admission records to Stone as, as henrietta fleming so you know there's there's lots of mysteries but it was this you know his family were an old ramsgate family so that really is how i i got the sort of fleming connection but he's a, a very interesting character for any very briefly for any folks who don't know his connection he was a he was a former uh friend in inverted commas most people assume lover live in lover of Mary Jane Kelly. Um, we don't know the exact order, but uh, Joseph Barnett uh, recounted what Kelly had allegedly told him about her previous paramours, um, and the ones he named were Morganstone, Stone, who's never been traced, who lived somewhere near Stapney, uh, Stepney Gasworks, and uh, Fleming, Joseph Fleming, who he specifically says was a, a mason's plasterer, uh, and lived in Bethnal Green Road. And he says that uh, Kelly... Lived with her, uh, lived with him for a time, and uh, Mrs. Carthy, who was one of Kelly's previous landladies in Breezer's Hill, uh, said that Fleming um, was very keen on Mary, and, and she says that he would have married her. Um, so, and then Julia Ventony said that there was another character called Joe that uh, Kelly knew, and she said that Kelly was very keen on him. But then in one account uh, it said that Joe ill used her because she was living with Barnett. So this strongly suggests that Fleming carried on visiting her while she was living at Miller's Court, or at least while she was living in one of the other addresses uh, that she shared with Barnett. So, and also he was supposedly uh, also gave her money, whether for sexual services or because of their past liaison is not known. But that's brief background as to how Fleming's involved.
2: Evans there, Chris. Uh,
1: um, one of the things you, you mentioned in your, in your book
2: um, uh, are these two uh, asylum—not uh, asylum, a big pardon—two infirmary entries.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: For um, <coughs> a twenty-eight-year-old James Evans. Yes. Um, one of which was uh, w- w- one of which entries, I should say, gives his address as sixteen F uh, uh, Block Royal Mint Street.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and the other, sixteen F Block Glass Street.
1: Yeah,
2: on a, I think you located Glass Street out in uh, was it Bethnal Green somewhere?
1: Yeah,
2: or uh, Mile End.
1: Yeah,
2: it's just, just from memory. But uh, I mean, we we've we've corresponded on this. I, I, I found um, the address anyway. It was uh, Glass House Buildings. That's right. Uh, which were a bunch of Peabody buildings down. Um, Towards, oddly enough, um, the, the Pennington Street uh, end of, uh, of of St George's East, yeah. where um, uh, Mary Kelly, Mrs. Carthy, Mrs. Phoenix, and all that were
1: yeah,
2: were stomping about. Yeah. Um, yeah, um But I think that I mean this guy was admitted to the infirmary twice in 1888. Um, yeah. Yeah. being of unfirm mind or unsound mind.
1: Yeah, one was on sound one, one, one mind, the other one said insane. That's right, yeah. But, but in both cases he was discharged.
2: Yes, and, we and no reason was given for his discharge either. Um, I mean, sometimes these, these um, infirmary entries say, you know, discharged at Colney Hatch or, or dis- right. discharged yeah. at
1: Claybury. No, it, 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 it was as though he was just let go. <laughs> if, if, if they were sent to Colney Hatch or Banstead or wherever, or if they were discharged into police custody, it nearly always said so. Um, there's another rather interesting one, which David—I uh, can't remember his surname. It was, it was only mentioned on the board a couple of days ago, but there's, a, there's another sighting in November of 1889, and there's a, a Joseph Fleming, um, uh, and he's down as being uh, living at 41 Commercial Street, uh, right. Which was, which was the—I the, the, I think which it was, was home. Victoria Home, yeah. And he's, it is he's, the, he's Victoria Home,
3: but, yeah.
1: But the, the, uh, the interesting thing there is he's, da- he's down as a dock labourer, which certainly is consonant with all of the details given when he went to Stone and Claybury, because in both of those and on the death certificate, he's listed as a dock labourer, not a plasterer. But, yeah. So th- this sighting in 1889, he's, he's down there as Joseph Fleming, not James Evans. But, but the interesting thing is that the November 1889 entry... In the uh, the infirmary admissions, um, has nothing whatever to do with mental. Unlike the two, unlike the two the year before, the the cause of admission is down as an inflamed leg, so it's a, it's a it's a purely <coughs> it's a purely physical cause of admission in 1889. Now whether this is the same guy, uh, there's the um, I'm very very wary of the two from 1888. Um, yeah. Because of the age, <coughs> correct. This this is the main uh, this is the main problem I have because there's the got the one the one in 1889 is listed as 30, which is bang on. I mean it's exactly right. He was born in 1859, so the the list the listing for the one in. Um, in um 1889 november the 18th off the top of my head and he and he was in he was he was admitted on the 18th of november discharged on the 30th so i think that's a much more likely sighting now if that is him and he's down as a dock laborer that suggests that he was still using the name joseph fleming up to the end of 1889 but, uh,
3: There's also but he, a problem with uh, identifying um, the Joseph Fleming who, who came forward with an injured leg with the uh, chap from F Block because I think the 1889 uh, record mentions that that Joseph Fleming had been living in Whitechapel for 14 months.
1: That's right. That's and
3: right. I, do, I don't think that Glass Street des- address is in Whitechapel. I think it's in somewhere like uh, St Botolph without allgate Yeah. Yeah. So that would that would pose a problem with identifying um, one yeah. with the other.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think the, the 41 Commercial Street is a sort of eminently, knowing his background and his sort of apparently itinerant, I mean, he, let, he left home by um, 1881. I mean, in the 1881 census, Fleming is already in, uh, already in lodgings. He's already left the, although he wasn't married, um, he left the, the family nest by the time the 1881 census and was in lodgings. So, you know, being an itinerant person... Um, when, when the trade changed, because in eighteen eighty-one he's still definitely listed as a plasterer, and he he was apparently following in in his, in his father's trade. Now, when and then he, he went, it was a downward
3: he, spiral, wasn't it?
1: Well, yes, because, because I mean, he, uh, sorry, carry on
3: if he went from being uh, he he started off being a a, a a mason's plasterer which was a earning a very respectable wage in those exactly. days yeah uh, and to go from that to uh, a costermonger thence to a docker is um, you're you're sort of taking a step downwards each yeah. time Yeah, and you have to wonder you know whether this was due to um you know just um unemployment um yeah. problems that sort of pervaded the district that's or right. it was uh, it was because of uh, his mental instability was recognized um, yeah. and and that affected his employment opportunities because That's i think right. a similar a similar thing happened with um uh, ultimate broadmoor patient james kelly um he yes. started off uh, in a very respectable trade and yeah. and he too um uh, took a spiral downwards because um yeah. because his instability his mental instability was picked up upon um just one possibility
1: Certainly. Uh, th- 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 two, two quick comments. So having having uh, transcribed some of the uh, Whitechapel infirmary uh, records, I'd just say that the uh, the number of dock... La- I mean, I know it was near the docks, but the number of dock labourers who were checked in as patients is, is is remarkably high, and they have, in some cases, some very... Um, they've got all the <coughs> usual, you know, sprains and lumbago and, you know, twisted ankles and all that, but there are some really quite serious injuries, and, and, and it was obviously physically uh, well it goes without saying a very hard uh manual job but secondly it was fairly precarious because it counted almost well almost it counted as casual labor because even within my memory i can remember back in the 60s there was i can remember after sort of union agitation at the docks when there were still docks in london that they ended up abolishing there was a thing called the lump which was where it was very demeaning. And, but this persisted right through to the 1960s. I remember seeing reports of it on the news. And men who were available for work would literally queue up at the gates. I mean, it was Dickensian, and, and it was amazing. It went on, you know, well into my lifetime. And, and then the, the, the bosses, or these the, were well, not the bosses themselves, literally, but their minions would come out. The gates would open, and a man would walk out with a clipboard, and, I'd say, and he'd say, right, I want five men. There'd be this great surge forward. Grab the nearest fire through the gates, and then the rest were locked out. And it was, you know, a very demeaning and very precarious. Um, obviously, you know, you had to make sure you were there early, and it was hit and miss, literally from one day to the next, whether you got any work. So, you know, it was a very, um, as you say, it was it was not not bottom of the heap. I mean, you know, there were there were lower jobs like scavengers and what have you, but you know, it was certainly a, a notch or way below the um, a, a trade. Like being a, a mason's plasterer, so yeah, he, I think he definitely was on a downward spiral.
3: And what's interesting is that uh, when he was committed to Stone Asylum, he makes reference to his former employment as a, um, as, a as a mender of houses. You know, he ma- he makes reference to his uh, his old profession as a plasterer. Yeah,
1: there's a there's a very odd um, in the, in the case notes for for Stone. There's this is very because it says, I mean, persistently it says he was delusional, um, and then he seemed to get. Um, Within a fairly short time, he seemed to get much better, and they, they were even, there was a, a, about to be um, a, a discharge hearing, and they thought he was, you know, fit to leave. And then suddenly, all these gross delusions returned, and whoever the doctor or uh, visitor was who went to see him in, in the notes, uh, it said that um, uh, Fleming, or Evans, uh, Evans, as he was known then, but Fleming claimed to know them, and that the, the, the writer, as it said, you know the writer of these notes. Uh, Fleming claimed that he'd been a friend of his in Whitechapel and that he'd actually mended mended the writer's house, and he also yes. claimed claimed to have decorated various houses in Whitechapel and this, that, and the other. So, as you say, there were there were quite detailed mentions of his of his previous um, employment, but um, and the, there was quite a quite a marked, obviously, mental decline. Because it, what surprised me when Rob Clack sent me these case notes from the time at um, at stone what surprised me was during the first few months that he was there he was actually working outside there were there were quite regular reports and the the first few they said you know he's, he's quite safe he's working outside you know obviously he was there sort of as a patient but he was going outside at where we don't know but he 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 had a job or some kind Work, of worked well
3: outdoors that, that's what they were saying wasn't it
1: that's right um, what, I, what
3: I find fascinating is that, um, s- despite the fact that they w- he obviously did have delusions, many of them had a, an obvious basis in reality. Oh, um, yes. You know, from the fact that he went, you know, he did live in the Mile End uh, Road n- near the Mile End Road, just as his kind of delusions stated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also the uh, the detail about mending houses. So uh, obviously, yeah. I mean, despite the fact that you know he was obviously mistaken and deluded and all the rest of yeah. it, but. Yeah. Uh, he obviously, you know, you know, was recalling actual events.
1: Yes, he obviously had a sort of tenuous grip on reality. Yeah, but um, I think you know also the the diagnoses because the other odd note there's this thing about being six foot seven, which has been sort of heavily queried. But I mean, if you look at the handwriting, it's actually quite unequivocal. I did, I did actually post that part on because a lot of people had queried it and said, well, it must be five foot seven. I mean, he'd be, he'd be huge, certainly by Victorian standards. But it said quite unequivocally, and then there was this other odd comment by his mother. That, uh, that there'd been insanity in the family for 160 years. And it seems such an odd real number. You know, you tell, has oh, been insanity in the family, for well, about 100 years or 150, but 160 seems very specific. I think the
3: 60s just, just seem weird, don't they? I mean, in, in both cases, whenever there's a 6 involved, it seems, uh, you know, yeah, oddly out of place.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and also, it's, as I said on the, on, the, on the message board to do with that, it's not, as far as I've been able to trace back... I can't see any sort of even inklings or hints of any insanity locally. I know that I know that uh, Fleming's grandfather ended up in the Minster Workhouse. Uh, Minster is a, a, a little village at the back of Ramsgate, and um, but that was as a pauper. Specifically, lists him as a pauper. There was no, I can't see any evidence from the, the the way I've gone back of any insanity in uh, in the Fleming side of the family through Richard or Richard Senior. So I'm wondering if Henrietta, who's the one who brings it up, means that there was insanity on her side of the family, on the Massam side. But again, uh, sadly, the one, um, the 1841 census, which is the first one, well, so it's the first one available. It was the first one ever done. She's listed there because it's before she got married, uh, but she's already in service by then. So it gives no indication as to what her parentage was. Because I wanted to trace back on her side. And I have posted on a couple of the genealogy sites, but I haven't yet had any feedback. So, obviously, I want to incorporate all this stuff into sort of an expanded uh, section about uh, Fleming and uh, rejig the book. But, anyway, I'm wittering on too much. Sorry. Now,
0: Howard has one last question about Joe Fleming before we we move on to uh, other parts of your book. Howard? Uh, Yeah. Hi, Chris. Hi. I was going to ask you, um, in your genealogical research, have you determined or can you figure out why that um joseph fleming may have used the nom de plume james evans
1: i've absolutely no idea i don't know where the name comes from Uh, it if if this 1889 um infirmary entry is is him and as i said you know the proviso there is that the cause of admission was nothing mental it was purely physical but all the other the age and the The address is is feasible and the age fits exactly. Um, Then it means that he adopted the name at some stage between 1889 and 1891 when he was admitted to Stone. So there's only a two year period. Um, It seems very. It's a lot of a lot of people have mentioned on the thread when I transcribed the records, and I I, I do sympathise with their sort of puzzlement, but I have no answers as to it was obvious that the, um, the authorities uh, in terms of those who ran the asylum and presumably therefore the police, because it, it, it says he was picked up, he was found wandering at large and um, obviously in an unstable condition. Um, it's, it's obvious um, pretty much from the beginning, certainly it seems to be obvious from the time he was admitted to Stone, that the authorities knew his real name. I mean, they knew his mother was Henrietta Fleming. Um, it, as I said, both names are on the death certificate, although that's many years later. He didn't die until 1920. Um, but they seem to, for some reason, sort of honour his wish to have this this alias because he's referred to, certainly throughout all the stone records and the admission records to Claybury as James Evans. So where the name came from, I don't know and why the authorities appeared to sort of play the game and keep up this charade of a false name when they, right, when they pretty much I, I, certainly knew the right one. I, again, I've got no explanation for it. I, I
2: but that wasn't from, a... Sorry, I'll I just, just chip in there on that specific point. But, you know, from, from personal experience, um, I've known um, mentally unwell people who insist on being called by a certain alias, otherwise they get very upset. Yes, yes. Um, a family friend um, insisted on being called Moody Blue. Yeah. If you called her by a real name, which was which Anne, uh, she'd, uh, <coughs> she'd go for you. I can, un- so. I,
1: can underst- I can understand that in terms of day-to-day interaction with the patient. I mean, he, mm. if he were in stone and he cut up rough, if somebody called him Mr. Fleming or Joseph, and I mean, he, mm. he might say, no, my name's James Evans, he might have adopted this. It's almost like having an invisible friend. He might have adopted this uh, this alter ego, but I can't understand why they would carry that over into the official paperwork to do with the case. I'm sure
3: Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Could it have something to do with his delusion that he was being um, uh, he was formally pursued by people who wished to kill him? Yes. Uh, You know, I mean, if, if if he's got if he's got that delusion, would that cause him to you know, in his paranoid mind, to kind of change his name?
1: It could well do. But, but, but what I'm saying, I'm not I'm not convinced that the authorities who obviously would want to keep uh, records that were as, as accurate and, and useful as possible, including all the case notes, I, if I can understand them humoring him. On the wards on a day to day basis. As I said, you know, if they called him Mr. Fleming or Joe or Joseph or whatever and he cut up rough and he said, no, 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 don't say, you know, don't let them know my name. I'm Mr. Evans. Whatever, whatever scenario. I can understand that if they wanted to keep the peace and keep him calm. But if they knew his real name through his mother, I can't understand why they wouldn't have used that on the paperwork to do with his case, which obviously he wouldn't have seen. So there was no risk of that upsetting him. But, I mean, if they knew his real name as a patient, I, I, I think it unlikely that they would have pandered to his delusion to the extent of using his adopted name even on his case records. Now, Howard,
0: you were going to say something there? Yeah, could it have been uh, a matter of uh, Fleming being in the institution for that long that whoever filled out the form didn't know that his real name was Fleming?
1: I I put, yeah, so, certainly possible. I mean, you know, there are... Uh, you know, all we can say with any certainty is that you know on on the um, on the case papers, his mother is identified as Henrietta Fleming, um, and her you know her, her address is given as Nile Street. Um, there are very, various comments about like this business about insanity in the family. So obviously, she was at least uh, you know materially involved in his admission. She was obviously interviewed and spoken to. So whether whether she was party to this pretense and knew that whether he'd adopted the name James Evans before he was actually admitted. I mean, as, as was said, it may have been that he was delusional. He thought that people were following him and trying to kill him. Now, if he, while he'd been wandering about uh, the streets of Whitechapel and was in this delusional state, whether he insisted on adopting the name of James Evans, then as some kind of talismanic protection, thinking that, uh, you know, if the people who were following him wouldn't follow him if, if he adopted another name or adopted another persona obviously there's no way of knowing but whether his mother was privy to the adopted name and and we don't know how rational he was uh, you know, to, to be interviewed I mean, the actual details obviously the physical details they, were, they would have measured him like his height and his weight and that but the, the background details that are on the admission papers, I mean, we don't know whether that was that came from the mother or was he, was he lucid enough to be interviewed or whatever. And if they said to him, you know, what is your name? If he said James Evans, and then presumably, you know, he must have given his some kind, or his mother came forward or he gave her home address or whatever, somehow she was contacted because she was certainly privy to his admission and was obviously at some stage interviewed. But where the name James Evans came from, I've certainly have yet to be able to find any evidence of anybody connected with the family by marriage, for example, who who had that name. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of James Evanses, but, you know, it's a mystery. I hate to say it, but I mean, it's and probably one we're never going to crack because whether, you know, whether he adopted it, as I said, for supposed self-protection or some other reason that we don't know of, then I think it's just going to remain unknown.
0: Let's move on from Joseph Fleming um, to discuss Aaron Kosminski. In your book, you describe how his older brother Isaac, while he may not have moved to Ramsgate, opened up a boarding house there and then took over another one.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and I found this interesting because it seems to have been a rather nice place, um, yes. unlike one you would imagine an East End boarding house.
1: Oh, be. God, yes. Yeah, yeah, very different.
0: While uh, still keeping his tailoring business in Greenfield Street in yeah. London. Uh, please uh, go into a little bit of that for us.
1: Yeah, uh, I, well, they're very, very different species, because again, both um, sadly, the, um, it's, it's what we call in England sod's law. You know, if, if basically meaning if something unlikely is, is, is could happen, it probably will. The the first um, house they moved to um, was uh, in a terrace which actually overlooks the harbour, and, and um, so it was right by Ramsgate Harbour. Um, and then some years later they moved to Albion Place, which is uh, on a hill that uh, again overlooks the harbour, but a bit, a bit further up. And it's a very, very nice, I posted some photographs of it. Um, and at that time the, the houses, which were uh, substantial four story, um, townhouses, when I say four story, I mean three stories plus a basement, because, because we're all on chalk here, uh, a lot of houses, even quite modest houses, have have basements because when they're digging the foundations, because they're easy to dig into the chalk. Um, and they took over this um, very substantial uh, four storey house in Albion Place. Now, there's there's one. This the houses at that time would have would have formed two unbroken sides of a square, and then there was a, a, a large uh, garden garden in the middle. Uh, sadly, there was one uh, a bomb landed. Um, at one stage during the war, and it took out about four of the houses near one corner, which have never been rebuilt. It's now a small car park, and you can cut through there. And, of course, this is what I mean by Sod's Law, the Abraham's House was one of those, because in the, in the book I originally misidentified it, and I, I posted the, some photos I'd taken, uh, because there is an old postcard, because it was called the Victoria uh, Guest House, or the Victoria Boarding House. Uh, and there's an actual photograph and there's a war memorial in the middle whereby getting the angle right, you know, you could judge it. And, and it was Rob Clack who put me right and he said, well, no, you've got the angle wrong. The, the house, the Abraham's house, would have been about three or four further down. And so it was out with the digital camera, this very confused-looking man who helped me get the angle right. And um, then it became a bit of a pain. He said, oh, yes, I know something about cameras. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for Jack the Ripper, at which point he fled. And um, so it does have its uses. But they, um, one thing again, when I was mentioning briefly earlier about the background to the, to the town, it might seem odd that um, not only a Jewish family, but uh, in one of the adverts for the Albion Place Boarding House, it does specifically mention that it was an Orthodox Jewish boarding house. Um, one of the, uh, most prominent citizens of Ramsgate during the latter part of the 19th century was Moses Montefiore who was a great philanthropist, he was a member of parliament, he lived to be some huge age, hundred, 101 I think he died and he was very highly thought of locally and if you wander around Ramsgate even today there's Montefiore Park and Montefiore Avenue and Montefiore School and this that, and the other Uh, And he had this huge house, which sadly is now gone, and it's now a local park. Um, So there was um, quite a large um, sort of Jewish attraction to the town because of Montefiore and his presence. Um, And there were apparently quite a number of Jewish establishments. But they were certainly very different from how we we imagine East End lodging houses. (laughs) They, they were they were listed in the local trade directories, they were listed as apartment houses or guest houses. And again in this advert it says they they had a dining room with piano and you know, entertainment provided. And it all sounds really quite genteel. And that they, they were certainly sort of rather nice premises. Now whether how much hands on the Abrahamses were, I don't know. They're obviously, they're listed as the owners and the proprietors of both the Westcliff Terrace one, which is the one overlooking the harbour, and Albion Place. They're in successive trade directories. They're from a, the late 1890s. They're listed as um, proprietors, but uh, as you said, they carried on the or they kept on the the business in Greenfield Street, the tailoring business. So how hands-on they were, I don't know. It may be significant at one stage that in the directories after the 1900 mark it's the wife who's listed as the proprietor so whether sort of she came down more often to keep an eye on things i don't know or whether they had a manager in but but um certainly they 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 ran them for quite some years as apparently quite successful businesses but uh, they were certainly quite a few rungs above what you would think of as a as an east end lodging house
0: now, we'll uh, continue on. You wanted to say a, a few words about Walter Sickert's connection to the area.
1: Um, I did say in starting the chapter that I was actually cheating a bit because although he almost certainly came to the town, Sickert never actually lived in, in Ramsgate, but he, he lived in the next town along, which is, uh, well, he actually lived in a small village called St. Peter's, which is at the back end of Broadstairs, which is about two miles from here. <clears throat> and he lived here from 1934 to 38. Before and then he moved to Bath, which was where he finally died in 1942. I've, I've got to nail McCullers to the mast. I don't want to get into the Patricia Cornwall debate, um, but I personally, I don't, although I think he was interested in the case and was a rather sort of bohemian and eccentric character, um, I certainly don't put any credence in the, um, idea that he actually was the ripper but i think he's an interesting enough character and an in influential i mean e- even if you only look on him as a sort of influential 20th century artist um and, and in typical sick fashion you know in 1934 he suddenly turned up at a local boys school um and um, sort of unannounced walked in and said um, asked to see the headmaster and announced who he was and by that time he was already sort of very very famous i mean he was one of the one of the sort of best-known of the English Impressionists. But in 1934, he arrived in, in Margate and walked into a local boys' school and <laughs> went up and said to the head teacher that he was going to start teaching uh, art there, which he did, and he, he would sort of turn up when he wanted and he would teach drawing. He insisted on being paid the lowest possible salary and all this. And then they bought um, uh, what was an ex-farmhouse called Hopeville in St. Peter's, him and his wife, uh, Therese, uh the house is still there this is one instance going back to what we said about permission and respect for people's privacy i was over in st peter's one day when i was sort of mooching about getting stuff of this book together um and hopeville the house where sickert lived is still there uh and as i was i had my camera with me but there was actually somebody pottering about in the front garden so i thought well it's only decent um so i went up and spoke to this lady and explained sort of fairly briefly and she was very pleasant and very polite and I said, you know, would you mind if I included a photograph of the house? And she said, well, I'd rather you didn't. Hmm. So, I didn't. There, there, there are photographs available. I mean, there's one, but older, you know, archive photos. Um, but it's it's a fairly substantial red brick um, farmhouse. Um, used to be belonged to a family called Mockett, um, who still I think he rented it from Matchy. I don't think they bought it. Um, and, you know, this tied in with the earlier version of the Lodger story, which allegedly came from Sickert, and there's all the, you know, the rather eccentric stories about Sickert and his wild tales and his, his painting of Jack the Ripper's bedroom and all that. The, <clears throat> the personal involvement, and this again might merit a second edition, was, um, a friend of mine who lives in the town, who's now in her seventies, who was, she's now retired, she was an art teacher. In fact, I'm going to see her tomorrow. Um, she, she knew about Sickert. i 've spoken to her at length about Sickett as an artist she 's not re- really not interested in the in the Whitechapel connection, but um, she is going to put me in touch with a chap who is the son of Sickert's housekeeper um, and apparently all that all that i 've learned at this stage is that there is quote some documentation available. You know, whether that's letters from her or letters from him or diaries or whatever or guest books because you know at that stage Sickert was um well enough known that certainly you know people from the art world and people from the intellectual world i presume of the osbert sitwell type set certainly would have visited him at um at st peters when he was living there for the four years and at that stage i think he was still travelling quite a bit although he was quite elderly by then um, so it'll be very interesting to see what this... I'm not getting my hopes up. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it may just be a laundry list or whatever. But um, so, you know, if there's anything of interest in there, I'll, I'll get permission to put it into any further edition of the book. But well, I, I don't know, because,
2: Chris. I mean, a, a laundry list, which I... You know, blood stain removal might
1: be quite interesting. Oh, don't, don't, don't.
2: <laughs> now, d- this is kind of an
0: aside, but you know that there's um, film footage of Sickert as an old man. Do you know if that yeah. was possibly shot? Um, in the area around Ramsgate, or was that I, later uh, from when he was in Bath, closer towards his death?
1: I think that was taken at Bath. Okay. Um, I, there is, there, certainly there's a photograph of him and his wife in the garden at Hopeville, at St. Peter's. As, um, I mean, he's already, you know, as I said, quite an elderly man. He was born in 1860, I can't remember the exact year, I think it was 1860. So, I mean, he was he was, cert, he was certainly of advanced years when he died. But I think the 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 the, um, the, the footage that I saw uh, the version of the Patricia Cornwall documentary when right. uh, w- w- that was the I think that was the um, film you're probably talking about. But I, I think that he was very elderly then, and very frail. And I'm sure that was taken at Bath because after they left um, after they left uh, St. Peter's, he lived on another what four years? I'm sure it was 42 when he died. And he, I know he left St. Peter's in 1938. Um, and I know he died at Bath, so I think it was four years. So I think he was. I think it, that was taken a bath. I'm pretty certain.
0: Okay. Now you had mentioned that uh, you don't put any credence in Walter Sickert's candidacy for the Ripper, nor, uh, mm. and in your book you mentioned that that um, all of the names that you. Uh, of the individuals that you've researched, their connections to Ramsgate. Yeah, you, you don't yeah. you don't consider. Although you you do refer to Kosminski as the primary suspect. You're referring to him as probably yeah. the primary, the chief police suspect. And um, but you do mention how someone like, and I want to emphasize that you do say like, mm-hmm. uh, David Cohen, yeah. who was first brought forward by Martin Fido in yeah. the crime detection and Death of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, uh, is your preferred suspect type. Can you elaborate yeah. on on that a little bit for us?
1: He's just the one who rings. I haven't got. There's no name in the frame. I mean, all my my interest and in, you know the work I do and the bits and pieces I dig up on on the the Whitechapel crimes is none of it is suspect led or suspect based. Um, this is what I, you know. I said in the book about um, that. I, I'm really not. I, I won't say I'm not interested in suspect based books. I mean, I will read them and I, you know I'll have my thoughts on them. Um, I've got a a mental picture, and it is purely a personal one, of the kind of person who I think is more likely than most to be the kind of person who would have done the Whitechapel murders. I can't put a name to him. I'm not even particularly interested in putting a name to him, but it's it's a sort of uh, more uh, conjuring up what his mindset might have been like. Now, of of the ones who have been put forward, the serious ones, and I don't mean that in a snobby way, but some of them are so far out there, like, you know, Lewis Carroll and Madame Blavatsky and all that. I think you, no, 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 no. But of the ones that you can take half seriously, when I read the Martin Fido book and read about um, David Cohen or Aaron Davis Cohen, as he's also known, um, and his subsequent behavior, he's he's obviously very disturbed and uh, on occasions violent behavior, and the fact that he died um, i think august the following year eighty nine in the asylum that just rang more true that even than Kosminski or certainly that Aust- well i think ostrog 's pretty much out of the frame now anyway but you know of the of the the, the high level candidates it just i 've absolutely no proof it 's purely a personal construct i 've got in my mind of the kind of mindset possibly of the of the person who would have done these these crimes, um, and again, it, it rings more true than a, than a Druid or a Kosminski or a Tumblety or any of the other high-profile candidates. I'm not saying that I think David Cohen was the Ripper, because I don't. I, I'm just saying that I think he fits more closely my concept of what the Ripper might well have been like than any, other, any of the other candidates that I've read you know, to date. That's really all I can say on it.
0: Now, uh, Mike Covel is uh, researching a book um, on Jack the Ripper suspects with connections to his town of Kingston upon Hull. Yeah, and um, because the the Whitechapel murders became a worldwide phenomenon, I mean, um, uh, we have suspects uh, not only uh, with connections to like your book in Ramsgate, Mike's mm. upcoming book in Hull, but then also San Francisco in the United States, St. Louis, Chicago, New York. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Yeah, sure. Um, What advice would you give to um, someone who might see, like you had seen the the name of the town that they're in, um, continually cropping up in in press reports about uh, the, the Whitechapel murders?
1: Well, firstly, I wouldn't. I, I think it would be extremely presumptuous of me to give any advice to Mike. I mean, who's done an amazing job, both on his blogs and the, the uh, the post on Casebook. I mean, his work is just absolutely incredible. Um, in general, uh, you've got to be um, bloody-minded. You've got to be obstinate. You've got to be um, slightly demented, uh, slightly obsessive. Um, and my if i could give one piece of advice if you were doing if you were researching it certainly with a view to doing a book my advice would be or even if you're doing your own family history for example or doing any local history research is have more than one project on the go at a time because i can i can i can tell you you will get you you Any project like this, you're going to reach an impasse and you're going to get to the point where you just can't see the way ahead and you're going to get frustrated. And if I do that, because I've normally got about three or four projects on the go at a time, if something's getting nowhere, I just back off and leave it and then switch to something else. And then two days later, a week later, however long you come back to it. And sometimes, you know, with a fresh eye and a fresh mind. You think, well, you know, I haven't tried that. You know, if you're searching census records and you get all sorts of misspellings and this, that and the other, and you can just hit on something, it's all this, you know, it's like the old definition about, about genius. I mean, a lot of it is is luck rather than, you know, any great sort of like, you know, I don't sit down and plan a book in detail. you I sort of mooch around the Internet and I look at census records and slowly just, you know, old threads here and there come together and you start seeing connections and you think, yes, there might be some mileage in this. Um, but it, it's purely luck. I mean, it, just as an example, I mean, about a week ago I posted some, um, I found a mention of, um, this is completely by the by, there's no connection to Ramsgate, but just as an example of this, you know, going off at a tangent sometimes. Um, I found a mention of James Maybrick in December 1888, December the fourth, not long after the Kelly murder, because I was looking for mentions of him in around that time. I couldn't find anything, and the the newspaper archive I was searching in, I put in Maybrick, and I put in James, and I put in the, the you know Battle Crease and this that and the other, and just nothing was coming. I mean, there were mentions of him, but not the period I wanted. And then you, you, sometimes you have to sit there and you, and and if anybody had seen me doing this, I would have been taken away. Because I was sitting looking at the, the print on the screen and I was squinting up my eyes and I was thinking, now, you know, all these, all these, um, newspaper articles are scanned automatically. What, what letter could that be mistaken for? So it's actually gone through and been transcribed not as Maybrick, but. And I tried uh, Maybrickle and Maybrich, and, and I thought, well, it's going to have a, a tall letter on the end. It might be an H. And then I tried changing the vowels, and I put mebrick, M E Y, B R I K. And they'd misspelt it. All of the articles of that December the 4th thing, it must have been syndicated, they were spelled his name as M E Y, B R I C K. I mean, there's that's no great inspiration on my part. It's pure luck. But you have to try odd things like that that may seem insane at the time. Um, it's like finding... Um, another example is, is finding Montague Druitt in the 1881 census. If you put Druitt in, if you put Montague Druitt in a search engine for the 1881 census, you won't find him because his, his uh, surname was so badly written and has been transcribed by a, a willing... And I can understand why they did it. But his surname on the index is down as Druck, D-R-U-K. Now, then you search around it. You think, well, I know his name's Montague. I know when he was born, and I know he's probably down as born in Wimborne. And there's not that many Montagues born in that year, you know, in Wimborne. So, you know, when I saw Druck, I thought, D-R-U, let's have a look at that. So be persistent. uh, Have more than one project on the go. Use all the resources you've got locally. You know, haunt your library like a second skin because you know if you're lucky and you've got a good library make friends with your librarians because they're worth their weight in gold if you've got a good one get to know your local bookshop keeper second-hand books antiquarian books anything like that because if you're lucky he or she will keep you posted if anything of interest comes in and you'll get first bite um, and it's just things like that some of which are obvious and some some aren't but i think you know it's just be persistent Look at avenues that aren't immediately apparent. I mean, obviously, local archives like Mike has done, superbly. Um, You know, local trade directories. um, And look at other sites. Get inspiration. Look at genealogy websites and, and read the message boards as well as, you know, just what you're looking for. Pick other people's minds. Don't be afraid to, you know, to nick. You know, if somebody comes up with a good idea, use it. You know, you've got to be an unashamed thief. I don't mean actually stealing material that other people have come up with and not attributing it because I think that's that's heinous um, but you know their methods if somebody says oh well I found this so-and-so you know if there's a an archive you didn't know about there's one I found only tonight there's a film archive called the Huntley archive that I'd never heard of and they've got you know 1910 clips of there's a there's a 1910 film called you know Jewish Life in Whitechapel And it's got a scene-by-scene list of what's in there. Now I'm going to do a post and say, you know, has anybody seen this? Is there anything decent in there? And it's just look everywhere. Don't be put off.
0: Thanks a lot for that. That, um, I thought that was good advice. Um, You had mentioned uh, that it's best to have multiple projects going on at the same time. And I want to quickly mention that uh, Chris (laughs) Scott uh, has written two plays in the interim. Not, neither of which are concerned with the Whitechapel murders, but uh, both of those plays that he has written are also uh, getting published here fairly soon. Uh, that's something about Chris Scott that maybe not very many people know of, is that he's also a playwright. So. And I'll con- congratulate you on getting those two plays that's published fine. as well.
1: That's very kind.
0: Now. Going back to your introduction, you have an interesting quote here you write now. This won't co- come as much surprise to uh, us uh, here on the podcast necessarily, but uh, I do think it's a good summary is that it, you say mm. it may it may surprise some that the identity of the killer is not the most important question in the eyes of many researchers into the case. Mm. The study of East London in the 1880s opens many doors to areas of knowledge that one might otherwise not touch upon. Putting a name to the killer is only one question among many, and to a number of students of the case, not a particularly important one. Yeah. I think that that idea uh, is best shown through looking at the work you've done um, in your books and in the message boards and in the press reports and everything um, that uh, really um, enlighten us on all aspects of, of the Victorian british historical studies. Mm. so i thought that that pretty much summed you up um, to a tee. well I, so.
1: I, that that's purely based on i mean if if I, you know if you sit down and end up looking at the areas of of interest and and reading that uh, looking at the whitechapel murders can lead you into i mean i if if i hadn't been interested in 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 the whitechapel murders i can't imagine at this stage, you know, I would willingly sit down and read a book about nineteenth-century policing methods, for example. Right. I mean, it just—it just, it just wouldn't, wouldn't. I can't see how it would arise. But because it's interesting background, and you know, all of although I've said, you know, the the, the identity of the to actually put a a fixed canonical name to the killer is, is is very low down my list of priorities. I'm not knocking anybody who is prefers to be suspect based, but. Anywhere near, it's not anywhere near the top of my list anyway, but they, I, I have read certain books, and I'm not going to name them, where the uh, r- 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 far from opening doors, as, which is what I said to areas of study that I wouldn't normally go into, um, I think if you become fixated and obsessed with a suspect, it can actually close doors in your mind. And I think that's always a problem, because if you build this construct... Of um, you know how, how you think the, the the murders played out, and you've got this uh, burning ambition to put a name to the killer, and I can I can understand that in people. I mean, I, I love as good a mystery as much as, as anybody else, but I, I think to become suspect fixated, and I, m- I mean that in the strongest sense. I mean, you know, to the point of obsession, which I think some people have been, um, and possibly still are. I think, you, you know, you then come up against, there's always, this, uh, there's always this banana skin waiting for you because, I mean, there's always going to be new evidence coming up. People think there isn't much about, but, you know, there's odd little uh, snippets here and there. And, you know, what do you do if you, you know, you tread on the proverbial banana skin and somebody posts some incontrovertible piece of evidence and your house of cards just falls away? Does that mean that all your all your study has been for naught. Well, of course it doesn't, because, I mean, you you might have come up with a lot of interesting material in the process, but I would far rather go into it thinking, well, you know, whether or not I ever find out who it is, A, I don't particularly care. Secondly, the reason, the bottom line is this, the reason why I'm not obsessed with trying to name the killer is that uh, on a purely practical basis, I don't think we're ever going to. So I think you're chasing a, you know, you're, ch- you're chasing a pipe dream anyway. It, you, you look how heated the, um, uh, over minutiae of the case, look how heated uh, debate can get on the, on the message boards on casebook um, mm-hmm. over, over something comparatively trivial. You know, how wide was Miller's court? I mean, it's as though the sky's going to fall. And, you know, if you actually said, you know, what proof would it take? I actually I remember saying this in the Kelly book. What proof would it take to convince even the majority of people Who are interested enough in the case to be members of and contributors of to Casebook? What proof could we envisage that would actually prove to people that you had finally nailed and put a name to the killer? And I can't imagine the degree of level of proof, because you know some people have got vested interests intellectually in if it's not their candidate, and I mean I'm sure that I mean the message boards would implode.
2: I think what you said, there, Chris, about you know the, the whole pack of cards falling, um, yeah. with suspect based books. I think there is a tendency, and a, a, perhaps a regrettable one, to then throw the, the, the baby out with the bathwater. You know? Oh yeah, so yeah. If, if if a suspect is disproved, then all the useful nuggets of information that maybe uh, would have been picked up uh, to build in the case against the suspect, you know, get uh, get tarred with the same brush. Exactly, which is a shame yeah. because there there are some nuggets in there. I mean, in, you yeah. know, Patricia yeah. Cornwell stuff, for instance, in, exactly. in in Michael Gordon's stuff, um, yeah, yeah, and, and various other suspects. That uh, Bruce Paley, who unearthed an enormous amount of information, you know, in, yeah. in a suspect Facebook. book, but, but unfortunately, yeah. you know, the the whole edifice gets uh, um, gets the shadow of suspicion. If you have yeah. the double meaning, there thrown upon it, if 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 the suspect in question isn't isn't your favourite, And I think yeah. that's why. You, you know, books like yours, <clears throat> uh, books like Neil Sheldon's and so on, which, which, which just give the, you know, the background, the, bio, the biographical background, um, the geographical background, um, might mention yeah. Phil Hutchinson in that breath as well, and Rob Clack, uh, are, you know, invaluable.
1: It's just, you know, it's just a bit more additional material, maybe into, you know, obscure little areas that people haven't gone into before, but, but, but which I find interesting. Uh, i mean it's i I agree with you entirely because i've i've read some suspect uh based well you know obviously quite a few suspect ba- based books and although you may disagree with the conclusion or you may think the conclusion is weak, then there still might be a lot of interesting information some of which you may not have read before along the way as you say um, I th- the greatest risk of course and again i'm i'm not going to name names because i think well there's there's one name that I think you know most and, it's it's not anybody who's any any longer with us. But I mean, the greatest danger, obviously, is if somebody gets so fixated or so obsessed with a suspect that when they come to presenting their case, they either deliberately ignore or suppress uh, factual material that they're aware of, if if it if it's you know if it doesn't coincide with um, with the conclusion they're trying to reach, um, or arguably the worst is actually to invent evidence, uh, which I think has only happened in a a small number of cases. And I think we probably all know, you know, the best known example of that. But, um, you know, I think you've you've got to be careful in if even even uh, like the Lewis Carroll book. You know, I I haven't got it and I haven't read it. But, uh, you know, if somebody presented it to me, I wouldn't say it's an absurd book. Take it away. I don't want to read it. Because I'm interested in Lewis Carroll. I mean, you know, I've read Lewis Carroll. I'm interested in him as I may. All this thing about anagrams and numerology and all that, I normally stand back hands up in horror because I think, God, no, here we go again. It's like the Bible code or whatever. But I'd still at least glance through the book to see if there was any interesting material in there, you know, along the way. And it's, it's, it's so easy. And I, I said this in the uh, Rip and Ramsgate book in, early on. It's, you know, you've got to keep an open mind because there is still the possibility, however remote, but there is still some vitally important evidence out there. There's 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 hordes of stuff that we know is missing, you know, like the big Tumblety file that was mentioned in the little child letter, and and this, that, and the other. And there's lots of police evidence that we know is missing. The the original From Hell letter is is is, is no longer in the files. Now, whether they're tucked away somewhere or have physically been destroyed, we don't know. But you know, what else is out there? That that's the that's the buzz. You know, what else is still out there? That, that's what gets me going. And I think whether it's a newspaper article or, a you know, a, a piece of evidence or a photograph or whatever... You know, there was, I remember a couple of years back before the big crash on the boards, I remember in an idle moment po- posting this uh, thread which was, you know, what was your wish list? If you could, you know, for Christmas, if you could have one missing item or whatever, and you know, people came up with a, a photograph in life of Mary Kelly or a, a photograph of Aaron Kosminski or the Tumblety file or all that. And there's, who's, who's to say that it isn't out there? Whether it'll ever turn up or whether it'd be recognized if it did. Uh, of course that's another question uh
0: does anyone else have any uh final questions or comments for chris
2: i just wanted to point out a really sort of parochial and personal um, connection with with ramsgate chris and, and that's my uh, my uncle and aunt uh, who, uh, who who live in new zealand at the moment um they they used to own a, a pub there called the foresters arms i don't know if you know it
1: the foresters yes yeah yes uh yeah. it's now called uh Oh, God, they changed the name. I can't remember what it's now called, because I'm not a pub-goer, but, um...
2: Well, it yes. wasn't implying.
1: No, 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 <laughs> but, no, no. But no. The funny thing
2: was, uh, they the used to own uh, pubs in... Uh, a, a pub in Mile End, and my, my uncle's grandfather uh, was uh, a police constable involved on the ground in the Ripper Inquiry. So really? It's, it's a kind of a small world, but a very secure but, link to, you, to Ramsgate you, that I've got there. You, and to the Ripper, you, indeed.
1: You get these um, coincidences so often. I mean, some of them are really uncanny. I was, I was, and I can't, I can't. I'd have to dig my notes out. I was doing some background on one of the police officials involved in the, not one of the major ones. It wasn't Anderson or Warren. It was one of the, you know, the police officers on the beat who is mentioned in one of the, um, uh, one of the reports. I mean, he was involved in. He was on the scene for one of the Ripper crimes. Anyway, I can't, I, I can't really remember which one, um, and he. I started, you know, doing a bit of digging around because at that time I was... This was one of the projects. I was trying to find a back, background material about the, the minor police officials. Um, and When I found him, um, it said place of birth where in Hertfordshire? That's W-A-R-E, which piqued my interest because that's where my sister lives and it's where my, my mother lived. It's not where I'm from, but it's where my parents ended up living and my, my sister still lives there. And when I... Um, started digging around and i I phoned my sister up because she's well into family history and all that and when i eventually found him i got a copy of his birth certificate um he he was actually born in the house where my sister lived (laughs) wow not not own. i saw i saw park road which was i knew was where my sister lived and i phoned her up and i said what what number park road are you and she said 52 i said how old's the house she said it was about 1860 i think why I said, oh, for heaven's sake. I said, Jack struck again. I said, what do you mean? I said, you don't. And she said, oh, you don't mean there was a murder in our house, do you? I said, no, 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 no. I said, don't panic. Don't panic, woman. Keep calm. Cal- calm down, dear. And, um, but no, it's, you know, that was really spooky coincidence. But you get, you get those so often. You get those so often. And, um, the. I meant to, um, I meant to say to Mike, because I was going to drop you a line about it, because the. You know the, um, the Mary Kelly story that was developed, that I did the RIP article about, you know, about the, uh, the woman who claimed that, you know, he, she'd survived and her grandparents knew him? Yeah. You know, the, the one who lived in Tottenham. Well, the lady, who's been, the lady who's been in touch with me, who that story came from and who's provided me with all the, the birth certificates and the marriage and That she lives in Hull. Oh, right. Excellent. So again, you know, talk about a small world. Anyway, I've witted on long enough, guys. I'm sorry about that.
0: No, that's perfectly all right. This has been a fascinating podcast, in my opinion. Now, um, where where can people buy your book, Chris?
1: Right. The uh, if you go on to the uh, Casebook site, uh, Stephen very kindly has given it a spot on the on the home page. So, if you go on to the just casebook.org and scroll down a little bit, it's got it's got a link there. Or um, directly, it's uh, Michael's Bookshop. All one word, no apostrophe dot com.
0: Okay, and I'll put that um, website address in the show notes as well for also
1: who don't visit yeah, the or,
0: message boards.
1: Or you, uh, you can also search for it on eBay because he's got his own uh, vendor site on eBay called Thanet Books. And it's… Uh, Spell it's that for us. Thanet Books, T-H-A-N-E-T. Okay. Uh, he's got his own vendor site if you just search for it on uh, either ebay.com or ebay.co.uk and it's uh it's 3.99 uh and free postage within the uk okay. and uh, he gets them out pretty quickly because they're almost it's almost like um you know print to order
0: okay and um um, I'll uh, whet wet the uh, listener's appetite by saying that uh, Chris Scott is currently working on another Ripper book. We won't say what it's about, but uh, just to let everybody know that he uh, is a busy man. So
1: yes, yeah, lot we'll like to keep busy.
0: <laughs> well, well, thanks, uh, thanks for being on today.
1: Okay, it's been a pleasure.
0: And that was Rippercast, episode forty-two, "The Ripper in Ramsgate," with author Chris Scott. I want to thank Chris Scott again for being on our show today, as well as Howard Brown, Mike Covel, Ben Holm, and Gareth Williams. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders available at the website www.casebook.org slash podcast or in the iTunes Music Store in their podcast section under History. Keyword is Rippercast. If you have any comments or questions for myself, our guests, or any of our participants, feel free to email the show at rippernet at Mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. See you next week.